Warning, this podcast includes graphic descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. If you are a victim of violence or sexual violence, resources are included in these show notes. My name is Walter Hartwell White. Now, I know a thing or two about cooking and true crime. That's why Forensic Clolets is by far my favorite podcast. Filets is recorded live in Jen and Pony's kitchen. Grab a spoon, a fork, some crime scene tape, and enjoy. All right. Welcome to Forensic Filets, our very first episode. Listener, I hope you're as fired up as we are. This has been a lot of pre-work getting this thing ready. I hope it's worth it. Today, we're going to be talking about a case... That involves, it's got a little bit of Mexico. <laughs> got a little bit of Canada. Ooh, ee, ee. So we're gonna be mixing jalapeno poppers. And originally I was gonna use Canadian bacon until I found out, as Jennifer here let me know, that Canadian bacon is not, of course, real bacon. It's just basically ham. I don't know why they call it bacon. Maybe that's why we're in perpetual war with Canada. I don't know. That and Justin Bieber. I'm not sure. So, we're going to do jalapeno peppers, and we're going to use real American bacon to wrap it all up. Right. So, a little bit about, I guess we should introduce ourselves, right? It's the very first episode. My name's Pony Hill. I'm a former employee of... Florida Department of Corrections, Leon County Sheriff's Department. I'm currently an investigator with uh, Bay District Schools. And this is Jennifer. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Jennifer. I am a nursing home administrator and I work in all kinds of different types of long-term care. And I'm here to help teach Tony how to make food. Yeah, that's the, the whole premise of the thing was when we were talking about doing this podcast in the first place was that, of course, I know absolutely nothing about cooking, so she could definitely teach me a little bit about that. And she knows nothing about true crime or investigating crime, so I could teach her a little bit about that because I'm constantly telling her true crime stories anyway. So yes. why not record it, right? All the time. Okay, so let's start off with um, talking a little bit about the way we, what we got laid out here for these jalapeno poppers, which I might state are excellent little snacks. We make them all the time. They're a huge hit. Yes, and they're um, our daughter's favorite. Yes. So you've got some stuff laid out here. You've already cut the jalapenos in half long ways. And I've de-seeded them, so they're all ready and prepped. have about 12 jalapeno poppers, or peppers. They're all cut. And then I have one ounce of block cream cheese, a cup of cheddar cheese. I like to use the Mexican four cheese blend. 
uh, we're gonna use onion powder, salt, pepper, and then about 12 slices of thinly sliced bacon, which that is the key at making these, and some cooking spray. Sounds like nothing I know anything about. <laughs> well, I've got it all ready. I don't, I don't understand how you can take all these different things and actually make food out of it. Well, I'm gonna show you how to do it today. All right, so you've got them sliced long ways and hollowed out all yes. the seeds and all that stuff out of it. So what's like the first thing we're gonna do? Okay, well the first thing we're gonna do is preheat the oven to 400 degrees. Okay. So can you turn the oven on? Uh, <laughs> you press start. Start. No, you press bake. Bake. Then 400 degrees. Then start. Start. There you go. Hey, look at that. <laughs> we're cooking with grease. Okay, so what's next? Okay. So first we have to make the filling to stuff the cut jalapenos and we are going to take our medium bowl and we're going to mix together our cream cheese that I've already softened. You have to make sure it's softened. So open that up okay. and dump that in the bowl. I'll just rip this maybe. I see it opens <laughs> like you have to, it has a, it's ready to be open. You just have to get it just right. There you go. Got it. Okay. And just the whole thing of cream cheese. The whole thing of cream just cheese. Just this whole gooey mess in the bowl. Softened, already softened mess. That's the key. It's, yeah, it's soft. It's gooey. Yes. It's going to be so good. Okay. Got it. And then we're going to take our Mexican four blend cheese. You need half a cup. Grab that cup. Okay. I have a cup. We're going to get half a cup in here. Put it right over the bowl. You have to put it over the bowl. Right. Half a cup Mexican cheese. Or blend cheese. Yeah. Just, this goes cheese. right in there. Just dump it in there. Just dump it in there. Got it. Then we're going to take a teaspoon of onion powder and a teaspoon of garlic. Okay. Use that. One teaspoon. And, and this is the garlic. garlic. That and then just goes in there. Yep, just goes in there. See, so yeah, I keep that. Who said I can't do this? <laughs> Other than me. A teaspoon of onion powder. Onion powder. Okay. If you hold it up straight, it'll just go. Oh, there we go. It's okay. And just Sometimes there you go. Sometimes more is better. Pepper. I like lots of pepper. How so much? A nice big. How much pepper? Um, I use about a teaspoon. Teaspoon of pepper. Oh, oh, yeah, that's a lot, but that's okay. <laughs> and then a teaspoon of, I use sea salt and everything. You have to pour that in there and it goes really fast, so be careful. A teaspoon of this. That's enough, yeah, that's enough. Okay. And now we mix it all together. Okay, just, just use this old spoon, regular old spoon. No, no? use a little bit bigger spoon. A bigger spoon, okay. <laughs> Not the little baby spoon. Not the baby spoon. And okay. mix that up really well. I'm hoping that if this podcast does anything, it demonstrates to you the true depth of my incompetence in the kitchen. Therefore, you will never ask me to cook anything ever again. Now, I'm going to teach you how to cook so you can do better. And we started out with you know a what very they say, simple if you, thing. If you give a man a fish... He eats a fish. If you teach a man to fish, if he doesn't catch any fish, he doesn't eat any fish. 
So it wouldn't be better to give the man the fish. You need to teach him how to cook it too. Things that, you know, philosophers have pondered this question forever. Okay, so the oven has preheated to 400 degrees. I'm supposed to just mix all this gooey stuff together? Yep, just mix it together really well. That looks really good. It smells good, it smells good. Okay, that's, you don't have to mix okay. it anymore. It's all nice all right. and okay. well blended. Most of it is stuck on the spoon. <laughs> so now we're And why don't you just cut open the bacon there? I cut open right? the bacon. Now I'm going to give you a smaller spoon. Okay. And now you're going to start stuffing. And I've already have a... You could cut my heart out with this spoon. Why a spoon, cousin? Why not an axe? Because it's dull, you twit. It'll hurt more. I've already put out a pan, a sheet pan with parchment okay. paper. A sheet pan has got some paper on it. Yes. But you need to cut... Is this like what they wrote on the Bible days? Parchment paper? <laughs> or I no? guess. Okay, now take... We have to cut the bacon in half, so I'm just... So a long strip, we're taking it's a whole bunch of bacon that's in a long strip, and we're cutting it in half. Cutting it in half. I'm okay. cutting like, this is probably, I don't know, eight pieces? Okay, quick question. Can you use too much bacon? <laughs> you can never use too much bacon. Correct answer. Correct answer. You win $100. Good, thank you. Pay me later. So, take each... Okay, each jalapeno. individual... Half of a jalapeno. Yes. And you start stuffing. And I just take a spoonful of this goop that smells so good and just stuff it right in there like so. Kind of pack it in there really good. Use the back of the spoon to pack it. Okay. Yes. Got it there. And then take one of these. Take one of those. Bacons. Okay, here's the trick. You got to make sure you put your hands just right. Put the one on top and then wrap it. And just kind of wrap it around like so. Wrap it around. And you can use toothpicks but I don't know where our toothpicks are so make sure the ends are underneath the jalapeno and lay it okay. flat on the pan so that when it cooks in the oven it doesn't like curl up and fall car curl up off of it right correct. okay I can see oh, that. well there you I go there that. you go there you go you gotta tell me it's more complicated than this <laughs> no it's that That's easy just like that and put it on the paper yes holy guacamole okay all right well as we're doing this as you got me doing this, I'm going to start telling you about this case. Okay. Now, this case, now I tend to not like, I don't know what it is about me, but I don't like listening to podcasts where they tell you unsolved things because it just gnaws at my brain, yeah. right? So yeah. I'm, I'm hoping we can stick to cases that maybe most of them, like they caught the person because it's so satisfying. You're under arrest. When, right. When you got some resolution at the end. <laughs> but this one has just always stuck with me because most most true crime cases that I hear or read or see on TV, I can kind of figure out like what was the impetus of this murder, right? Like a scorned lover, you know, personal insult, get some money out of it with uh, insurance money. You know, or something, but there's there's just so few that have no, don't, don't make any sense. So this one is kind of in that category, and it's just kind of stuck with me. So, let's get into it. Okay, this is a, is a murder. It happened in 2008 in a suburb of Victoria, British Columbia. So, Canada, right? Right, right. A place where they don't have real bacon. <laughs> 
Okay, I don't All know right. what the problem is. But so, in this area, 24-year-old Lindsay Buziak was living, and she was just starting out her career as a real estate agent. Mm. This also cued into what we've got going on in our lives right now. We're a uh, uh, listener, you may want to know that we're trying to buy a house, so we're in the market and dealing with real estate agents. Um, but I wouldn't wish on any real estate agent what happened to this young lady. Mm. It was terrible. So she was just starting out her career as a real estate agent, and she has a boyfriend named Jason, uh, I guess it's Zalo. Hope I'm not mispronouncing it. But her boyfriend was raised in a wealthy family that owned a successful real estate business. So she was kind of met in through the real estate business. Lindsay worked at the same real estate agency as Jason and Jason's mother, who you'll find her name pop up in this case quite a bit, Shirley Zylo. Zalo's out, I'm not sure. But towards the end of January 2008, Lindsay gets a call on her personal cell phone number. Not at work, on her personal cell. Okay. And the call was so strange that she discussed it with her boyfriend and her father, who lives several cities away. She called him up to talk to him. She, it was a call from a woman. The woman had a strange foreign accent and the woman told her that her and her husband were looking for a house and they had a budget of a little over a million dollars. Oh, wow. But they had an oddly specific list of demands. The house had to be new but vacant, three bedroom, three bath, have a separate live-in area for a housekeeper, and they needed to buy it within three days. So it's very unusual phone call. So you can see why she was, you know, her hairs came up on her neck and she called, she had to tell, ask everybody about it. Right. Can you even sell a house in three days? That's, that's a good question. I guess if you're, <laughs> you know, I guess if they're offering cash or something, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm. Now, of course, we can't seem to get it done. I don't know how long it takes, but, you know, <laughs> that probably in and of itself would not be too strange of a call for a realtor. But what really alarmed Lindsay was that this woman, as a complete stranger, didn't call the real estate employer's number. They called directly personal to her cell. personal cell number. That's right. Right? Yeah. Plus, Lindsay mentioned to her father and her boyfriend that she thought the woman was talking in an obviously fake Spanish accent. Mm -hmm. So this is really odd, right? But then, Lindsay's boyfriend, Jason, he starts to kind of remind her of the amount of commission you can make on a million-dollar sale. And he even says, you know, if, if, you're, if you're really concerned about it, I'll go with you. And I'll wait outside in the car while you show the property. And, you know, everything will be you know, kind of copacetic and kind of safe that way. Despite all the alarm bells ringing, Lindsay Caves sets an appointment to show the property at 1702 to Salsa Place at 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 2nd, 2008. Now, on the day of the showing, Lindsay and her boyfriend, they have a late lunch at a local restaurant, and the police eventually, they pull up all, when they get evidence for the case, they showed they paid the bill at the restaurant at 4.24 p.m. Now, at the restaurant, Lindsay and her boyfriend, they leave in separate vehicles. Lindsay goes home, changes clothes before showing the house. Jason went to a car repair shop to pick up one of his friends. This was a guy named Cohen Oatman, all right? 
I thought he was going to go with her. Well, he, he does. He's, he's going oh. to go with her, but he's going to go pick up this friend first. Hmm. Because I guess they had plans later on in the evening. Him and his friend were going to go do some stuff while, you know, after she had made the showing of the house. So at this point, police learned from looking at text messages on Lindsay and Jason's cell phones that Jason's friend Cohen ran into some kind of snag at the auto shop and Jason was going to be running a little late meeting Lindsay at the house she was showing. All right, so we're getting most of the jalapeno poppers put together here. Now we bought how many jalapenos? We bought 11. 11. Cut them in half, so we're actually going to wind up with 22 yes. jalapeno poppers. Yes. So we better awesome. invite somebody over to help us eat all this stuff, <laughs> right? Because it's going to be quite a haul. But back to the case. Now, when Jason and his friend Cohen were on their way to the property, Jason discovers that the address, 1702 DeSalsa Place, was new construction. doesn't show up on his GPS. We got a, that problem a lot around here some, in some of these new developments here in Panama City. He called Lindsay and asked her, like, you know, some physical directions on how to get there. And Lindsay was in the process of telling him over the phone how to get to the house when she says, oh, I've got to go, they're here. But right after she hang up, Lindsay texts Jason the address, and Jason responds on the way. Now, police know all this from the, you know, the ev forensic evidence they got off the phones, right? Okay. Now, Jason later tells police that he and his friend arrived at the property at 545. And they observed Lindsay's black BMW parked at the house, but no other vehicles. Upon parking at the curb, Jason tells police he saw a man start to walk out of the front door. The man notices Jason and his friend, who just pulled up at the curb, and the guy turns around, walks back inside the house, and shuts the door. Oh, my God. Now, at this point, Jason says he starts his car and drives to another street to wait. What? Right? Oh, That's very suspicious. Right? Yes. Why didn't he wait there at the curb to fin for her for Lindsay to finish the tour? He tells police he didn't want to be a nosy boyfriend. What? That's right? kind of odd behavior, right? Yes. Like you see this guy start to walk out. I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm on so the he sees here. he sees this guy. He walk sees a guy out, start to walk out. Sees her BMW. He was supposed to meet her there, but then he says, "I'm going to go wait down the street." Yeah, and instead of just sitting there waiting. But she had told her, you know, to be to feel safe, I'll be waiting outside. Hmm. He, he doesn't even wait. He goes okay. around the curb. Okay. Okay. Jason, the boyfriend, says he waited 10 minutes down the street. Then he texted Lindsay. She didn't answer. So he waits another 10 minutes. Then he and his friend drive back around to the house. Jason gets out of the car, walks up to the front door. Now, he tells police in his interview... He looked through the glass on the side of the door and saw Lindsay's shoes on the floor at the entrance hall, but didn't see anybody in the house. What? He said he tried the door. It's locked. But he can see her shoes He's, in the floor. Yeah, because I guess it's, I guess they pull, you know they kicked their shoes off at the front door because right. they're walking through the carpet and everything. You know that's completely understandable. But. Okay. So he sees her shoes. The door's locked. He knocks several times, rings the doorbell, no answer. So at 6.05 p.m., Jason calls 911. 
While Jason's on the phone explaining everything to the 911 operator, Jason's friend Cohen gets out of the car. You know, he sees that, you know, his friend seems to be in some kind of can't get in the house, this kind of deal. Mm -hmm. He goes around the side of the house, finds a way through a side fence. And he yells back to Jason that the back patio door is wide open. Mm -hmm. Right? So while Jason's still on the phone with 911, his friend Cohen goes through the back patio door, walks through the bottom floor of the house, because it's a two-story house. He walks to the front door, unlocks it, lets Jason in. Now, at this point, Jason ends the phone call. He tells him, you know, he tells the 911 operator, I'm in the house, I'm going to go look for him. Ends the phone call. So according to both Jason and Cohen, who are interviewed by the police, the, the two enter the house, they walk through the house calling out for Lindsay. They see a trail of bloody footprints are on the stairs leading up to the second floor. Oh, God. When they get to the second floor master bedroom, they find Lindsay laying on the floor in a pool of blood. Oh, jeez. And then at 6.11 p.m., Cohen calls 911 as Jason's doing CPR on Lindsay. So EMTs and police quickly arrive, and Lindsay Busiak, 28 years old, is pronounced dead on the scene. Lindsay had been stabbed multiple times. She had no defensive wounds. None of her possessions were stolen. Her purse, everything's still there. She had not been sexually assaulted. Still in her professional real estate attire. Let's take a pause here on the case. We've got all our stuff here. We've got our jalapeno peppers all wrapped up in bacon. Yes. It's already smelling really good. We're ready to <laughs> pop some of these bad boys in the oven. Okay. We've got them all evenly laid out on the parchment paper. Yes, and then you'll take the pan. Okay, we got some good old cooking spray here. Yes, and you're gonna just light, well first shake the bottle. Shake. And then lightly spray all of them evenly. Just give them a little coat of this. Yes, just a spray. little, just a, go ahead, you just, just, just press it down <laughs> all over. As if I is was this your first a, time? Actually, yes, it is my first time, but I've used spray paint. I've spray painted many things. So we'll just call this, for all the guys out there, uh, a light coat of primer. Right? <laughs> okay. So now we've got it all glossy and shiny. And now it just goes in the oven? Now it goes in the oven, and we're going to keep it in there for about 20 to 25 minutes. It's legit that easy. Okay. That easy. So I'm just going to put this in the old oven. And... 400 degrees. Okay, so how long would a tray of those bad boys have to cook? About 20 to 25 minutes. 20 to 25. So we need to set the timer now, right? Right. So. Okay, timer. Hold it till 20. I would do 22. 22? <laughs> okay. Yes, and, and then, then start. Start. It's counting down. Excellent. Yeah, we want our bacon to be nice and crispy. Nice. I love crispy bacon. Okay, so listeners, we're going to take a pause here while we've got everything in the oven, and we'll be right back to uh, wrap up the second half of this case and maybe get these uh, yummy little snacks out of the oven. We'll be right back.
And we're back. We got everything in the oven. I'm going to try to tell you a little bit more about the case. It gets it gets muy loco, or mucho mucho loco. <laughs> anyway, they found the body of Lindsay. She's been stabbed to death, mm-hmm. brutally. Police get there, begin their investigation. So initially, when they you know a normal procedure for the police when they get somewhere, not only interview anybody who's there on site, but also go around the neighborhood. That's called a canvas. They canvass the neighborhood and see if anybody noticed anything out of the ordinary, if they'd noticed anybody coming and going from the house down the street, whatever. Okay. Right? So police were able to find two witnesses. There were some neighbors from down the street, and they told them they had seen a couple, a six-foot-tall, light-skinned male with dark hair and a woman with blonde hair, walk up the street. Not drive, not drive to the property, but walking down the street to walk up to where the house was. They told police they saw the couple shake hands with Lindsay and they all greeted each other in a way that the neighbors who were just, you know, looking for down the street made them feel like, you know, they're all meeting for the first time. They were thinking, okay, well, she's probably showing them the house or whatever, right? So, but when police did all the forensic work inside the house in the crime scene, they find nothing. No DNA, no fingerprints, no murder weapon. So very little actual forensic evidence to go off of. This leaves police with only one piece of evidence, one real hard piece of evidence. The phone calls to Lindsay's personal cell phone, right? Because you can use you know, data tracing, find out who's, where all these things come from. That's right. Because she called, initially this started the, by the, the per, lady. Yeah, this whole thing started with the strange person with a fake accent calling her, right? On right. her personal cell out of nowhere. So the calls that Lindsay had received were from a burner cell phone, of course, right? Of course. That had been purchased in Vancouver several months before the murder. Now this is a whole different place in Canada. And the very first call on this cell was to Lindsay's phone. Mm-hmm. This phone had been purchased and only made calls to Lindsay. That was it. Nobody else. And it was on the day she got the strange call from the woman wanting the house. The only other calls on the call registry from that, the, the information they downloaded, was either to Lindsay or from Lindsay. And the phone was powered off immediately after the murder. And to this day, that number has not been used since. Never turned the phone back on. Wow. So obviously somebody bought the phone to set this thing up, right? right. And then they disposed of it. And then they got rid of the phone. Right, of course. Right. So police found that the phone was purchased and registered under the name Paulo Rodriguez. But they are positive that the name is entirely fake. So it's just entirely a fake name. So at this point, police are stumped and the case goes cold. So now is where we get into the, like I told you, this ties into Mexico, right? This whole case. It's in Canada, but somehow it ties into Mexico. So police were provided several leads that seemed to point to the involvement of a Mexican drug cartel. Just, I mean, by, I'm, just by going on the burner phone? I mean, I'm stumped, right? This is a real estate agent, right. a young lady real estate agent in Canada. Why would the Mexican cartel try to target this, this girl? This, yeah. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Girl. Right? Well, let me tell you. In a police interview... Jeff Busiak, who's Lindsay's dad, remember I told you he had called her, she had called him and said, 
I got this strange phone call? Yeah. They interview the father. He suggests that Lindsay might have been murdered because of a massive drug bust. What? Jeff tells police that in December of 2007, just three months before his daughter's murder, Lindsay had come to visit him in Calgary, where he lives, and Lindsay told her father she had been contacted by an old friend and she had seen something bad go down. Oh. Right? He doesn't know much more than that. So in November of 2007, this is the month before Lindsay goes to visit her dad in Calgary, an informant relayed information to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police of an impending shipment of cocaine. This kicked off a year-long drug investigation of a Calgary-based organization with ties to the Sinaloa cartel in Mexico. So in January of 2008, just a few weeks before the murder, this friend that Lindsay had contacted was arrested and 80 kilos of cocaine was seized in the largest drug bust in Alberta's history. Jeff was suggesting to police that the drug cartel had suspected Lindsay of being a snitch and eliminated her. Oh, wow. Scary stuff. Now, so the drug cartel was able to find Lindsay right, all right, the way in Canada? Right. So, this, so you remember me telling you when we first started the episode that this case has always like stuck in my brain because usually you can figure out like what was the tie, what was the cause of what, the, what this murder was. This seems to answer to me because there's almost like no reasoning for why she would be murdered. But if she had given information on the Sinaloa drug cartel and cost them a bust of 80 kilos, that's plenty enough reason for this to happen. And it almost seems like an assassination because there's, there's like no evidence. Right. There's, you know, it's not a sloppy crime scene. It's very almost professional seems like. The whole thing seems to be set up. Burn our phone, the whole deal. The, the weirdest thing was, you got a, a 28-year-old real estate agent in Canada. You would be amazed by, when I looked over this case, how many connections this girl has to people who are either major drug dealers or arrested for drugs, like huge amounts of drugs. It's, it's, it's insane. I don't, I don't know how this average person that's just a regular real estate agent can have all these connections to this major drug cartel business. Right? Did her boyfriend know about it? That's the thing. I don't I don't know if he um, did or not. Jeez. She had numerous friends who connected either through blood, business, or romantically, or even just friendship with operators of an arm of the Sinaloa drug cartel. That's how most of all of the cocaine coming into coca to uh, Canada was coming through this drug ring, right? But she had huge amounts of connections to all these people who were busted in January 2008. Wow. This being a well-planned drug cartel hit, you know, not out of the realm of possibility. Now, there's some people who've researched this case, including a retired RCMP detective, have pointed to Leopoldo Rojo Beltran and his sister, Hermelia, being the couple who arrived at the DeSousa house for the showing. They believe it's him and his sister that showed up. Now, who is this guy? Beltran is a Mexican national with known ties to the Sinaloa cartel who was living in Calgary at the time of the murder. Beltran was also later arrested at the same drug investigation that Lindsay had mentioned to her father. Oh, 
man. I'm now this guy was a this guy was a major player in the Sinaloa cartel, right? This is giving me Ozark feeling. Right, it's got kind of an Ozark <laughs> feeling to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention that you know, Will Arnett, he's from Canada. Oh, that's right. And Will Arnett is in a podcast with Jason. Jason Bateman. of Ozark. Right. So I think we need to, you know, this is a major break in the case problem. I mean, the, the connections are just out there. Six foot tall Beltran and his blonde haired sister do seem to fit the description given by the witnesses. Now, information has come out since the murder in 2008. And it seems to suggest that the informant who first gave the cocaine shipment info to the RCMP was a realtor working for the same real estate company as Lindsay, Jason, her boyfriend, and Jason's mother. So could this ID of the informant have been slipped to the cartel on purpose? Or had someone pinned Lindsay as the informant to remove suspicion from themselves? Or had the January drug bust and Lindsay's loose connection to it given someone the idea to take Lindsay out and then pin the murder on the Mexican cartel. See, plans within plans. Wow. You know, because they knew she was connected to this big drug bust. So if you're on a plan to murder somebody, what better time than now? Because they just say, oh, it was, it was the cartel. It wasn't me. Maybe that's just my right, so suspicious somebody, mind. So somebody had to know that she knew about that. Right, apparently that was huge news at the time. And, and she knew a whole lot of the well, people how, there. Yeah, so, of course, she would have been talking about it. Yeah, it's crazy. Jeez. This realtor that knows all these, you know, all these drugs. It's crazy. It's crazy. Was the name Paulo Rodriguez the fake name of a cartel assassin? Or was the name used on purpose to register the phone to lead the police astray? Just like the fake Spanish accent of the caller to distract investigators with an exotic drug cartel assassination when the real murderer was much closer to home. Right, that's right. right? That was a fake accent. Fake accent. Right. Why would why would Mexican cartel assassins need to have a fake Spanish accent? Now, you can say like okay, they had a fake French accent or they tried to sound American, but they, so they wouldn't need a fake hmm, Spanish somebody's, accent. Somebody's Right? Right? It's, it's just crazy. Let's go back to some more closer-to-home things that, that we got to talk about. Immediately after the murder, Jason turns over a laptop to the police. This is a laptop that he and Lindsay shared. When police examine the laptop, police find that a large amount of data files dated from January all the way up to the date of the murder have been deleted. Now, they can't find what the information was, but they can see that there were files there that had been deleted. So that in and of itself, to me, is super, super suspect, right? Yeah. Like, it's super sus. Like, why would a realtor... I mean, couldn't she just... Like, what would a realtor... Two <laughs> realtors. Delete her files, yeah. He and her, both realtors, what do they got going on? They need to delete a whole bunch of stuff before he hands the... And it wasn't just his personal thing. So, hey, I'm deleting a bunch of stuff. I didn't want her, her to know I was looking at. Right. I was it's they were sharing the laptop. So, what was on there that needed to be deleted? Right. It's a good question. 
Now, police also examined Lindsay's Facebook DMs and noticed that either Lindsay or someone else with access to Lindsay's Facebook account had deleted all the messages from that same time period, January up to the murder. Deleted all the direct messaging. Oh, wow. Right? Now, what was that all about? Now, of course, like, same thing with the laptop. They can't see what the messages were, but they can tell that the messages had been deleted. Now, here's the real kicker. Well, this will really blow your mind. Two days after the murder, a woman named Nikki. Now, Nikki's a close friend of Lindsay. She calls police to report she had received a strange call on her cell phone. She says in the middle of the night, she received a call from an unknown number. She answered it, and she said a female voice with a strange accent begins talking to her in the middle of the night. What? Nikki's confused. She said it seems like a prank call, like the woman was doing some kind of fake Spanish accent. Oh, my God. The woman on the other end of the line quickly realizes, oh, I must have the wrong number, hangs up. Right? Nikki tells police she returned dialed the unknown number maybe 30 or 40 times. Just keeps bam, 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 bam. Finally, someone answers. You're not going to believe who answers the phone. Shirley Zylo. Jason Zylo's mom. The mom of the boyfriend. She freaking answers the phone. Oh my God. This is really getting... Jason's mother apologizes and explains she's trying to call Nikki her secretary. I guess she has a secretary named Nikki. So she had misdialed the number. Hit, you know, when you go on your right. contacts, you hit Nikki, right. got the wrong person. But she talked in a fake... So why are you calling your secretary talking in a fake Spanish accent? Yes, that is... So was the secretary the next person on the list? Or, you know, it's really weird, right? That is weird. The whole, the whole weird, weird thing is the, sp the fake Spanish accent. Fake Spanish accent. accent. What are you doing with How that? How do you even... That must be really bad. Yeah, it must be cartoonish or something, Bert. <laughs> I don't you know? even know how... Well... Nikki remembered the woman with the Spanish accent who had called Lindsay, and this freaks her out. So she calls police and reports it, right? Good. Another interesting, you know, I'm doing air quotes here, listener, coincidence regarding this whole case, the house where Lindsay was murdered. Remember the real nice million-dollar house? Right. Sits on a cul-de-sac named DeSousa Court. Four homes on this cul-de-sac, they're all empty. Oh. All empty. So that house and all the houses on the cul-de-sac are empty. No witnesses. That's the first thing that popped my mind. Like, if you're looking for a place with no witnesses, but how do you know this if you're some Mexican the, cartel assassin? Right. How does the drug How do you know this, know? right? Yeah. So it's a perfect spot with few witnesses, but you got to know that. Right. you got to know the houses of the area. Now, the house where Lindsay was murdered is owned by a developer named Joe DeSouza. DeSousa Courts, named after developer Joe DeSousa, a close friend and business associate of Shirley Zylo, Jason's mother. Oh, jeez. What is Shirley up to? So Shirley, Shirley and Jason, everybody connected with the family would know that these houses empty. are empty. Right. Right? Now, of course, police, you know, of course, police want to know, did the strange female caller choose the house on DeSousa Court or did Lindsay? Because, you know, it's a very oddly specific... Remember remember when the lady calls her, she has a very oddly specific 
range of house she wants to look at. Got to be over a million dollars, three bedroom, three bath, and have a, a space for a, another person to live in, a, a housekeeper or something, and be available where they could instantly move in. Any real estate developer, I don't care where you're at, that's not going to be a very short list of houses you can show. Right. It's like you knew this house that you wanted to go to, so exact you give them that house. description, right? Oh, yeah. We you tell them like you tell them going. that you know I want a I want a blue house on DeSouza Court. Right. And you're like, oh, what a coincidence! I have a blue house for sale on DeSouza Court. Not suspicious at all, right? <laughs> wow. So here's another interesting, air quotes again, coincidence. The answer to this came from a police interview with Shirley Zilo. All right, we got there. We're almost ready to turn this off. Should I, should I hit end here? Well, let's check it first. Check it. So, there, it stopped. And it looks like, yeah, definitely next time use toothpicks. <laughs> and what we're gonna do is because it's not crispy on top, because the bottoms will cook better than the top, we're gonna change it to broil. Okay. And we're going to do it for about a minute. Maybe two. Okay. And we're gonna broil the top. Broil so it the changes the oven from the bottom burner to the top burner. Well, it would only cook on the top. That's what broil means. Who knew that ovens did that? <laughs> that is just amazing right there in and yeah. of itself. The yeah, things, modern knows. technology. Everybody modern knows. technology. Okay, where were we? So we find out that Shirley, Jason's mom, was being interviewed by police she tells the police that she had visited Jason and Lindsay's condo like the day before the murder and overheard a 15-minute phone conversation between Lindsay and somebody that she described as the strange-accented woman. Shirley tells police that it was Lindsay that suggested to the person on the other end of the call to go to the D'Souza house. And Shirley also volunteers to the police that they went to dinner later that same night and Lindsay had confided in her that she was afraid of one of her ex-boyfriends. Wow. Why would Lindsay just come out of nowhere and say, oh, I'm afraid of one of my ex-boyfriends? Yeah, so sense. where we sit now, this is still an unsolved case. Now the police have said, since all this came out, that they have information that they know who purchased that burner phone, but they've never revealed who it was. They're holding that information because I guess they need more evidence before they can charge somebody. Was this, this, I mean, it's crazy. We've got a whole bunch of evidence that seems to point straight towards this Mexican cartel guy and his sister who fit the physical description. Right. That they could have done this because, I mean, they just got arrested. Okay, so the broiling's over. Excellent, excellent. And let's check. Look it up. And it looks good. It looks excellent. It smells great. Smells good. Let's take it out of the oven here. Right. You can take it out. Put this thing on my hand here. I'll burn my fingers. Oven out. mitt. Yeah, it's super hot. Yeah. Listen to that. Mmm. <laughs> Sounds great. All right. So now you just let that cool. Just let it cool. Oh yeah, looks good. It does look good. Yum yum. So that's where we're at on this case. We've wrapped the case up, and I, I still to this day don't know what, what in my mind was it Mexican cartel, or was it somebody closer to home? Because there seems to be some real 
fishy things going on right there with her circle of people that she was associated with. Yeah, that is strange. Right? So I don't even know where to end this case. on. Like I said, I'd much rather have a podcast where we wrap things up in a nice bow and we have nice resolution at the end. Oh, wait. So you're telling me that this was not solved? Not solved. What? It's not solved. See, that's what I'm saying. I thought that's, you that's, said... the, that's the feeling I have, too. Whenever I hear, hear a podcast or I watch a show and they say, like, and it was never solved. I'm like, what? And when did this, what year did this happen? This was 2008. And it's 2023. Yes. And, so... and they still have not made an arrest. They still haven't named a suspect, not solved the case. Well, I feel like you tricked me. It's terrible. It's just like one of these weird, <laughs> random things that just, just you can't figure out. It's strange. Very strange. So now that we've got these things cooling and we're going to eat them pretty soon, I come to my, one of my, I hope is going to be one of my favorite parts of the podcast, a segment that I call, What's in My Shorts? Oh, What's in your shorts? Yes, because I'm going to talk about just a short story that's not got enough information to make like a whole entire podcast. Just a nice little interesting short story. Cute. So let's go. We were just in 2008. Let's go a little further back in time. Let's take it back to the 80s. In the 1980s, in Silver Plume, Colorado, which sounds great. It sounds like, is that that little town that Joe Dirt was trying to find? Silver Plume? <laughs> That was Silvertown, I think. Silvertown. Maybe. Anyway, in Silver Plume, Colorado, there was a small bookstore owned by Tom Young. Tom would often bring his dog with him to work. He was running the bookstore. On September 7th, 1987, at the end of his workday, Tom turned the sign in the window from open to close, locked the door, and then completely vanished off the face of the earth. No goodbye letters, no pack boxes, no overnight luggage, just poof, Tom and his dog are gone. Nine months later, the owner of the building had rented the space where the old bookstore was, he rented the space to Keith Reinhardt. Keith promptly opened an antique shop in the old bookstore. Naturally, opening a new business at the location of the old bookstore Customers would often mention the strange disappearance of Tom Young and his dog. This perks Keith's interest. He begins telling people he's going to write a book about the bookstore owner and his dog. So this is where it gets interesting. On August 7th, 1988, exactly 11 months after Tom Young and his dog disappear, Keith finishes his workday at the antique store turns off the lights, flips the sign from open to close, locks the door, and then vanishes from the face of the earth. Oh my God. Right? Stephen King, 100%. Stephen King. This is real? This is real. No goodbye letters, no pack boxes, no overnight luggage, just poof, Keith Reinhardt is gone. Jesus, alien. Now, deep in the mountains around Silver Plume, two hunters would find the skeletal remains of Tom Young and his dog. Both had died from a gunshot to the head. The remains of Keith Reinhardt, if there are any, have never been found. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's scary. Stephen King. That Stephen King, 100%. King 
All right. So, how does that taste? Is it cool down enough to eat yet? No. No? Okay. Well, listener, we're going to wrap this up. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. I love rambling on, and Jennifer loves to show me how much of an idiot I am in the the, uh, kitchen here. It truly is, this kitchen is a crime scene. And that brings me to this. Right now, during this entire cast, I know you can't see it, but I'm wearing my Forensic Filets apron. It's got awesome printing on the front that says, My Kitchen is a Crime Scene. It's hugely popular. I know you're going to love it. So go check out our merch store. We're going to post it all over our social media where you can find all this merch. If you have some cool merch, check it out. And subscribe. Follow us. Check out our podcast. With that being said, this is Pony Hill. I'm out. And Jennifer, are you out yet? I'm, I'm out. <laughs> all right. Y'all have a great day.